This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Can civics class save democracy? Should it even try? We'll talk about that. Plus, schools are unequal, but it turns out so are PTAs. Finally, our teachers say anymore it's rare for them to have perfect attendance. Why the problem of student absences is only getting worse. All those topics plus kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Greg Brenner, what do you teach? High school social studies. Maddie Burkemper, what do you teach? Third grade. And Luann Fox, what do you teach? (laughs) She teaches third grade everything. (laughs) Um, I'm, I'm high school English. So Greg, Maddie... And Luann, they're all public school educators in the Kansas City area. Well, can civics class save democracy? That's the broad-minded hope, at least, expressed by backers of a new Massachusetts law that aims to encourage civics instruction in schools. Among other things, the law requires all 8th graders to complete civics projects and also creates a program to raise awareness for eligible students to register to vote. One Democratic state senator in Massachusetts said of the measure at its signing ceremony, quote, in light of recent reports of voter suppression and the perilous state of our country's civic and political life today, this legislation is especially critical, end quote. That sentiment is trendy nowadays, the idea that our current political problems can be solved in part by better education, especially better civics education. In the last two years alone, at least 16 states have either enacted or considered legislation that, like Massachusetts, aims to revamp civics class. But is this assumption true? Will our politics get better if our civics classes improve? Is that even a fair or realistic expectation to put on schools. So I put it to my teachers here today, Maddie, Luann, and Greg. Will having civics requirements and more civics instruction make kids better citizens? Short answer, no. no. And that's our government no. teacher. And this yeah. is this kind of kills me coming from, from, yeah, the government teacher. But just the, the thought that, hey, let's get, get our kids to run blood drives and, and other so, sorts of things can all of a sudden make our politics better just seems really naive. It seems like there's a lot of other problems that just civic engagement by itself is not going to solve. There, there needs to be a lot of other things than just really? participation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we have a lot of problems in our I democracy. I think I disagree with you guys. Uh, what? Disagreement? Yeah. Oh my. I know. I bring it. <laughs> it's always <laughs> why me. Do you disagree? Well, why do you disagree? Well, I mean, what, was the, what was the point that Greg was making that you disagree with? It's, it's more about like what maybe more civis, civics instruction could hopefully produce obviously like taking a civics class isn't going to like poop out like amazing citizens automatically but like if you have more awareness of how democracy is supposed Mm -hmm. to function and you have more knowledge about the way that the process works wouldn't that make you buy into the system a little bit more but i wonder or value the system i think the very nature of what our democracy is though is actually changing I think you can teach kids about three branches of government, but I don't think that we are enacting democratic principles 
at government levels the way that maybe we did 40 years ago and 80 years ago. I mean, more even to what Greg started off with, Luann, it's beyond just the idea of learning the three branches of government or those kind of like yeah. the knowledge about government that, you know, we always bemoan that people don't know, like, who the 40th president right. was. or no. But, but, I mean, like Greg was saying, like, even the idea of volunteer service or like running a blood drive was the example that he used. That would even, I think, in his mind... Right, which we no. do every year at my school, yeah. by the way. Like, I have right. my kids actually but do that. that. But you're saying that doesn't, that, well, that doesn't help, I guess. Is no, it, is it seems it. like there's two different things that we're talking about. Yeah, we're, I want to hear on, more. On one hand, we're talking about our politics and our political system. Right. But then we're also talking about how our kids involve and engage in our community. And I think that's, that's a great goal, to get our kids in, engaged in the community. But then when we're talking about saving democracy at a political level, getting our kids involved at a local level is not necessarily going to help that. There are a lot of other things that, that we need, just being able to discern fact and opinion, just being able to discern oh, what, what the difference is when you read something or see something or read something on, on social media. And that's a skill that our kids need to know. And that's not just for like civic education. That's just being a human being. That would help out tremendously. So you're talking that, more about like the like the, the community service, the service, service part. aspect because that, is that what's seems that like seems to be the feathers. thrust. Well, mm-hmm. that just seems to be the thrust of this. That hey, if we get kids more involved in and doing things for the community, then all of a sudden our politics will right. magically get okay. better. Right, and like volunteering will make you yeah civic. And you think that right. linkage is is superficial, is facile. You don't, you don't think I think that's kids. A, I think kids nowadays understand that money makes the world go round so much. I mean. Whenever there's an election, there's always like how much gets raised and and, and and if it's legal or not. I mean, it's all about money and, and kids are, I mean, I think kids can volunteer and I think you can talk about having kids be more empathetic. But in terms of like, if you ask the kid, you know, do you think this is going to like make change in your society? The kids are going to be like, no. That's either like feel good for themselves or whatever, but they don't, they're not going to see themselves as helping to change systems. That's interesting because I feel like and we've had a lot of conversations this year especially about that possibly changing, you know, with the March for Our Lives movement. Teenagers, I think, do seem more politically engaged. Also, voter turnout for people ages 18 to 29. I know that's not high schoolers, but it's people who are just out of high school or like, you know, a few years away from high school. Voter turnout for that demographic of people, top 30 percent during the November midterms, which I... I gather, was the highest turnout rate for that demographic in 50 years. Is that changing? I mean, do, do you feel like, like students really are, you're saying they're disengaged? Well, this might be yeah. like just a 30,000 view, and like maybe time will tell. But, I mean, a, an issue that's really close to me would be about gun safety in the schools. And that really was something that worked up a lot of students, rightfully so, around the country. And the 30,000 view of it is like, well, what's changed? more active shooter drills, more instructional time that's going to be spent on hoping that our kids are safe and talking to our kids about being safe, but like nothing that actually like helps our kids. I think they just see that and they get frustrated after a while. I mean, these kids are, have not grown up with a, a sense of like knowing how to be patient and knowing how to play any kind of a long game. So when they see that they can't affect anything, I think they just give up. Um, I think there's a, like an underlying assumption in this conversation that our politics are so bad because, in part, people weren't giving good civics instruction. They're, they're ignorant about the way government and, and, and the civic, civic life works. Um, is it school's responsibility to teach that? Man, I mean, yes, absolutely. I think that teaching is a moral act, and that part of my job as a teacher is to help individuals be ready to function successfully mm-hmm. in a society. 
part of that is knowing how to engage in the political system. Well, I will chart. say so. I will say the the nonprofit education commission of the states in 2016 actually released a report on civics education, certainly encouraging civics education and and kind of pointing out all the benefits. It, it did lay out kind of a program for if schools really wanted to improve their civics education, some some kind of principles to follow or things that that program needed to include it. And among those things was the idea that you needed classroom instruction in civics and government. So that's, I mean, that's what Greg does. So you, you need the classroom instruction, but you also need um, service learning linked to classroom learning. So there needed to be projects or things that were explicitly linked to what kids were doing in class as well as models and simulations of the democratic process. So we're talking about like student government. We're talking about um, student council. Class um, elections, yeah. Having class elections um, and, and modeling what a democratic society looks like inside the four walls of a schoolhouse, as well as discussion of current events and issues within the class um, that probably um, have to be linked meaningfully to something that's going on, um, which I think I mean, a lot of our teachers have talked about how gun gun safety and gun control has been a, a real talker in class this year for, for all different kinds of reasons. Greg, you're a, you're a government teacher. How does civics play a role in your job? Is there, is there a part of your job or part of your curriculum that is like very civics oriented? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I honestly, on some level, I think, I do think that they're, that they're linked, right? That if you learn the government side of things, if you learn the basics about the three branches of government, separation of powers, federalism, so on and so forth, that that leads you to becoming engaged in the community, that you should become engaged in the community. And that's part of the school that I'm at. That's part of our mission statement is that students come out as leaders in their community. So that pushes us then to look for those opportunities to go out and serve the community. I just I, I really think that to help our political system right now, what also needs to happen is a little bit of education in how to communicate with one another on, on a very civil level, be able to have an argument and a discussion without it devolving into a shouting match, being able to communicate complex ideas, because that seems like that's what we're lacking, because there's a lot of arguing and not much listening going on. Well, well, yeah, well, well Leighton in the idea of improving civics education, basically the, the latent assumption in that is if we make civics education better, then our politics will become better. Do you buy that? Do you, do you buy the idea that our, our bitter political climate is, is due in part to a lack of, of civic understanding among people? See, I, I would love to say yes, and, and part of like the, the really like hopeful, energetic side of me says, yeah, it, it, it can. But on the other hand, I think our political system is in, in, in such a state right now where we only have two options when we vote. And because of those two options, they're so disparate and the polarization among choices is, and, and people is such that, no, it's, it's not going to. I mean, and there's so many issues involved with that, like single-issue voters. It's really difficult to have civic education bridge that gap. Yeah. And, and the system itself, just how it works right now, just isn't exactly how the, the framers of the Constitution intended, where mm, you, have, you have gerrymandering all over the yeah. place. You have 20 senators representing the majority of the nation because of, of the way you know, equal representation in the Senate works. So if we're trending towards no... To that mm-hmm. answer to that first question that I asked was, can um, civics class save democracy? If we're, if we're leaning towards no, I, what is the role of schools in this discussion or this these, I think, perennial hand-wringing about the state of American democracy? 
What's, what's school's role? No, I, I totally believe that it is the school's role. It, it's almost like a moral imperative that we do get our kids out there engaged in the community because at the very least, that's, that's, we can do that. We can focus on making our community, our locality, a, a better place. Yeah. I don't know if we can actually change the overall political system, but at the very least, let's focus on something that can be done within our community. Good place to end. Are you getting more right. thoughts? Luann, Maddie? Yeah. No, I think that that's a good place <laughs> to good. end, too. That's good. It's kind of like... Sorry, I killed it. No, <laughs> I don't it's think good. you killed it. I think it's like that topic feels like a bag of worms yep. oh, a yeah. little bit, and like you're pulling one out, and you're like, is this the one worm that's going to fix it all? Yeah. And you're like, I mean, I, that's I, a worm, I, but like, is it is it going to fix everything? Yeah. I agree with you that right. it's not going to fix everything, but I also think it's incredibly important, which is why that mm-hmm. ma- it makes it so hard to talk about, because it's like, I can't pick one or the other. Your metaphor game is very on today, though. I'm picking, full, full picking, of metaphors. Picking worms out of bags. I, uh, I will not be able to get the image of America pooping out citizens, though. Well, here's <laughs> the, the, this is when you take a normal human and you put them in a third-grade classroom. It really limits the language choice you're able to use. So you have to... I've become a big fan of saying rats. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. American schools are inequitable. That's not news. From local tax revenues to student test scores, it's well known that there are vast inequalities in the U.S. public school system. But a new wrinkle, at least to my thinking, was added recently with a report by one of my colleagues here at KCUR Public Radio in Kansas City, Missouri. Her name is Ellie Moxley. She's the education reporter for KCUR. And Ellie detailed how PTA fundraising in one suburban school district here in the Kansas City area is incredibly unequal. In the Shawnee Mission School District, Ellie documents that while some PTAs feel lucky if they can raise $5,000 for their yearly budget, other PTAs in this same district can raise 10 times that in one fundraiser. One PTA, in fact, boasted a yearly budget of more than $300,000 during a recent school year. The more affluent PTAs are using their funds to pay for things like grants for teachers, field trips for students, and in some cases, the salaries of full-time counselors and social workers at their children's schools. Schools. The upshot of all this, of course, PTAs are just another way in which the education gap between rich and poor is growing ever wider in American schools. As teachers, does this situation strike you as an example of inequity, or is this just parents doing what they can to support their children's school? How do you feel about this story? I, I guess no, teaching I in, in an urban setting, I have never seen a functional working PTA, so I don't <laughs> even know what one looks like. A lot of our parents are working multiple jobs and really just don't have the time, wouldn't even know how or what a PTA is. And that's even with one of the hardest working persons at our school is our parent liaison who does a tremendous job of contacting parents, getting parents in for, for parent nights. But as um, in terms of like having an established PTA, I have never seen one and I don't even know what one looks like. Mm. Whoa. Well, that's a, I mean... That's intense. That's a, that's well, a big that's form. A, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, a a big, that's a big form of inequity. Yeah. Yep. Isn't it? I mean... Yeah. When I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, I felt zero surprise. You're expressing an ambivalence I find interesting that I also found in myself, right? The idea that um, reading this story and, and reading this information strikes me as a little bit 
it feels wrong, but at the same time, it's like you're not, you're not going to stop parents from supporting their kids' schools. Right. I think it, it's a symptom that is showing you that there are other things that you would need to do to help the inequity that exists within schools. Say more. What do you mean by that? Say more. If I had to guess, the highest grossing PTAs probably have a lot of moms without day jobs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, like yeah. you need like it's a business. And so like that treat it like a job. Right. And that statement is based on my own. Like I grew up in a very privileged grade school. And so like there were PTA moms everywhere all the time. Each room, homeroom had a had a room mom. Each homeroom had parties for all of the holidays. Not like one big school party that we all shared like your room party with your own games that a mom put together like they're cutting out turkeys for you to pin feathers on it. That engagement with your parents is a good thing for kids, and I think it's less about stopping some people from doing it and more about enabling everyone to be able to do that. Or like a suggestion for the PTAs who gross a whole bunch of money would be like, hey, get your head out of your butt and look around. Like, look next door. Could you share? Like, could you donate some of your money to someone else? I don't feel anger at the parents getting involved. I just feel anger at the system allowing some yes. parents to get involved and other parents. It's not that they wouldn't want to. It's that they monetarily or time-wise cannot. Yep. That makes me feel angry. Yeah. Uh, Luann, you actually work in a district that neighbors <clears throat> the Shawnee Mission District. I mean, it was actually pointed out in Ellie's story explicitly that your district, Luann, mm-hmm. is, is a district that explicitly bars PTAs right. from providing funding for staff positions. So one of the things that really jumped out at me about like, yeah. Ellie's story is that some of these PTAs are actually funding full-time staff positions, yeah, like it, counselors and social workers, which I think yeah. they argue that their school needs and all schools need. Um, uh, but your your district, Luann, uh, bars PTAs from doing that. Why, why is that? I was kind of pleased. I don't yeah. know why, but I'm kind of pleased to kind of pleased to know that, actually. I, I'm sad to know that a, P, a PTA could pay the salary of, of somebody else, you know, for Why does staff. it make you sad? Well, it's just because that's the province of, I mean, that's not the province of, of parents. I, I just, it just seems like if, if parents want to get their hands that much into, like, how their kids are schooled, then homeschool them, you know, or or create the school yourself. So it's, how how are you part of a public school system and in control of the public school system or, or having a, a... A measure of control. I yeah, I guess that's what I... I guess that's kind of what I mean to say is more of a measure in contr- of control. That We need more social workers. That's probably just, you know, true across the board. But I was looking at some of your other questions and it's like, should PTA stop raising money if they already have enough? And I'm just sort of like, sure. I mean, like, why Why not? Absolutely. I mean, if they have already have enough, why would they, why would they keep raising why would they keep raising money i just think that's that's also true about some parents that they're taking on aspects that we think that kids want when they were like they're being competitive with each other and i think parents are doing that as well i I think what's surprising about this story was that it happened within one school district where in some schools in that district didn't have as vibrant of a pta weren't able Mm -hmm. to pay that it's only in the the schools that had that had basically wealthier neighborhoods in essence and that to me is somewhat shocking because Mm -hmm. isn't it the job of the school district to try to even out those inequities and i would think that they would try to step in and and do something do you think there should be revenue sharing among yes yeah yeah i do so you think i mean that's people don't like hearing that but i do yeah all of america's children are our children right that is my right and and any of the teachers within a district can 
be moved within the district. I mean, it's, you know, we're, we are district employees. We are not school employees. What if you did that? What if the PTAs all raised money for a district pot? And had it and had it be divided? Right. I guess you then know? you'd still have the same problem because some districts have wealthier... But yeah, would, and it, then you would probably have the wealthier people. But it would even out things. Do a lot less. I know, and parents would not go for that. I, I could just, <laughs> I could just see the rage happening oh, in those. Oh, I'm sure. In, in, that makes me wealthy, so but incredibly it would be. sad. But that's, that's why exactly we need civics, happen, right? right? So then that, that way, when you volunteer, you connect with with yeah. people outside of your family unit, and then Absolutely. you feel a response of civic duty, because education is a right of all the children. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, circumstance in Otherwise, America, everything so, should be capped. Like, for instance, right. if if a if a PTA have to do with civics. Well, right. I, I mean, if if a PTA can subsidize two field trips, why? Like, do they need to? I mean, like, you know, or three? Why does it have to be that much? I mean, if one school can only do one, I mean, like, why does another school have to do more than one? I, I like the idea of having them be more civic minded per se and put this in a in a larger pot that could be divided. I think you. It would be more equitable. But how do you ever convince someone in a PTA that is successful civics. at fundraising? <laughs> the answer for everything today is civics. Um, I don't know. Going and connecting with their neighbors, feeling a duty, a civic duty to the schools that's of your not area. Enough. That's not enough when it comes to people's pocketbooks. Uh, or their mm-hmm. kids. Or their kids, right. Oh, definitely their right. kids. And, yeah. and especially then. Then why should my money go to help other kids? I hear yes. And I understand that, but then like once Expand you feel like your net. like once you become a parent, like it kind of warps it a little bit. You're oh, just do like, you feel Arr. that way now too? Maybe slightly. I mean, so if you it, were in a PTA at a school and then you knew your PTA was doing really, really well and you were super involved, but you knew that the PTA down the street was like losing its mind mm-hmm. and there were a bunch of things that weren't going well, what would you do, Greg? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would love to say that I do the honorable thing, but at the same time, I know my budget. Yeah. yeah. All right, Luann, <laughs> you had something you wanted to talk about, and I'll let you introduce it. Well, <laughs> this is amazing. Absenteeism, that's Scarlet A. So students are absent, um, and they're absent a lot. And when they're absent a lot, it becomes hard for the teacher to be able to do what the teacher needs to do. I think if the teacher is really doing a, a good job of teaching, which means that, you know, there are ideas that are in the classroom. Uh, the teacher's a conduit of some kind of knowledge. There are some learning components and interactions that happen in the classroom. And so, like, being there then becomes really important. And when the student actually misses that, when the student is trying to figure out how to get credit, per se, then it really just becomes trying to get points and helping my grade versus learning. Do you feel like student absences, whether they're excused or not, have gotten worse during your career? Yes. I mean, I remember um, starting in this profession and being like the expectation that the kids would be there, and especially in AP class, right, which is, you know, about 98% of my experience. So, you know, students are there. I mean, they're in a challenge class because they signed up for the challenge. So, therefore, the expectation is, is that the being there is going to be important because they're going to be getting more than what they would otherwise. And it's like they didn't miss. And then like over these two decades, it's just like, uh, teacher needs me for X. I got to do this 
blood drive, pardon me, or you know, I've got a, I'm gone, oh, or like we're, we're gonna we're gonna go, we're gonna go, uh, you know, it's gonna be break anyway, so we're just gonna go a day early, or you know, I had a fight with mom, and we're gonna make up by going see a movie together, so that's like a bonding moment, so that's more important. You've gotten than that class. excuse before? Well, that happens. Oh, happen. Oh, heck yes. Kids right? don't come to school on their birthday. I mean, my, that's it's a just, huge thing at my it's, school. It's just the looking of looking at school like, well, it is just a job. And I think that's because we tell kids that that's kind of like maybe how to view, to view it. But like how, when we it really isn't their job is what I'm, it's really their life. Right. We're trying to grow them. And it's really hard to grow them when they're not there. If being there is not that important that I'm not sure what that says about my profession. Right. And it's not sh- I'm not sure what it says about the view of my profession. Like, why do I have to go to school? Why do I have to get training? Why do I have to, like, learn all these things? Why do I have to plan for my own absence? Because I'm being told that, like, what I do is kind of important. And then on the other end, I don't, I don't feel that from the constituents. I don't feel that from parents, right? I don't feel that from students because, you know, it's just school. I, I kind of feel that 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 pain and that we're supposed to come up with with lesson plans we turn them in and they're supposed to be wonderful lessons using all these strategies that we've learned throughout our years and when a kid misses that they're not only missing like the the content but they're missing whatever synergy that comes out of that classroom and and can they really recoup that when a kid comes up to me with the one of the excuses that I always get is is kids leaving early for uh, for Christmas break for instance because they're going to go to Mexico to visit family so then you know you're like what are you doing kid you know parents what what are you doing you're basically saying like all of this work that I am doing that I am producing to try to help you become an educated human being doesn't really matter you're kind of like just spitting on that so I could I totally understand that. That's it's it's frustrating. Is there a more generous way to look at it though? I mean that, you know, if you have a kid leaving to go visit his family. I mean, yeah, I mean that's that's the other side of it, right? Like and, and you talk to the kids like, yeah, I haven't seen my family in 10 years and this is our only opportunity. It's like what what else can you do? You know, at, at the same time it is it it is frustrating, but yeah, it you 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 see the student side of it, but man, I worked so hard on this lesson, you know, why aren't you here? You're missing out, man. <laughs> Maddie. <sighs> You've been I mean, noticeably, notably silent. The uh, yeah. My kids have a lot less control over right. whether they are or Third are graders. not at school. Yeah. I mean, every once in a while, I, I'll, I'll have a kid who hates school, doesn't want to go, has a lot of anxiety. Not a, not a hatred of school, but they have anxiety going to and from school. And so, like, one kid in my class right now has 19 absences already. Wow. <laughs> in yeah. one semester? Yeah. Wow. We have really bad absenteeism. So for me, like, I don't, I can't allow it to give me so much angst because if I do, it's just going to tear me apart and make me feel, throw in. So how do you deal with that? Like if you, you are basically budgeting into your work, the fact that at least one or two or more kids are going to be gone. Always. So how do you deal with that? Like what, how do you catch those kids up? How do you plan to? Well, that's hard too, because so much of the curriculum is moving, especially in elementary school, where you're moving away from paper pencil like you know the way I teach math now is just littered with manipulatives and group work and interactive things and things online that a lot of my kids don't have access to because they don't have internet at home and then like the it's not like I can really afford to give them one-on-one makeup time I mean I've gone over to 
kids' houses before to, like, try and kind of catch them up a little bit if it gets really bad and their parent shows a lot of concern. Some parents ask for me to send makeup work. If it's a kid who I know is responsible, I'll send the book home with them that night and they can go over it with a parent or someone. I don't I mean, know. It seems, I think it seems pretty it's more corrosive, just, though. If, if it's kid, awful. If a kid yeah, or, or multiple kids are gone every day. Yes. I it's it. it's it's not okay. But you if you don't, don't but have the larger control. I think the larger thing that just won't go away though is that teacher accountability is always mm-hmm. on the increase and yes. nobody else's accountability is because this this impacts I'm supposed to be accountable for students that don't exactly. make up work, right? right? And if someone if some kid comes in at the eleventh hour to make up something from week two of school, it, it becomes an issue. I mean like that's an issue because the kids made it be my issue. And then talk about like, you know, when Kyle mentioned like how disgruntling it is when you just don't have all of your students show up every day. You know when they show up? They show up for finals, of course, right? And you ask them, Hey, everybody's all here. I've done that before. You know what they say? Well, it's important. That's telling, right? It's important, Miss Fox. I mean, got to be here. Well, hell, you got to be here now, right? Mm-hmm. But I guess the other eighteen weeks, I, I, yeah. that's just a sort of like it's whatever. I, I would like to think of myself as a, as a pretty solid teacher who can get kids caught up. But in my worst moments, I find the the, the kid that chronically is absent. I start just hoping that they're just stop showing up. To be honest, it, because it it is such a hassle. Because if if they finally show up after missing for say four days. Just, you know, if, if they ask, hey, what I miss, that question, the tension in that question, okay, I could give you everything and you would be so overwhelmed because usually the kids who are chronic absenteers anyway aren't the best students and aren't going to be able to get caught up. Right. They'd feel so overwhelmed that they would shut down in class. And then we have, on top of an academic issue, we have a behavior problem. So on, on some level, it's just like I'd rather not deal with it, you know, and – my situation um, teaching upperclassmen, you know, almost adults, is a little bit different where, where yeah, I, I can kind of dissociate myself saying, look, you're, you're an adult. It's, it's up to you. You can get here to school. It, it's, it's your choice. But at the same time, I am still held accountable. My kids still have to take a state test. And we are held accountable by the numbers on that test. And if kids don't show up, they're not going to learn the material. Well, they also should, I mean, be incentivized by graduation too, right? You would one would think theoretically. Theoretically, one would think, but it 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 seems to like it, come May they're like, wait, I don't have enough credits to graduate. What do you mean I don't have enough credits yeah. to graduate? Well, Luann, hopefully psychically at least this uh, this last fifteen minutes helped you. Oh yeah, no, it's <laughs> absolutely no. I'm 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 happy to get to kids to these kids these days. I'm waiting for that. Well, before we get to kids these days, more headlines. Let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. In Chicago, as of this taping, teachers are picketing in what is believed to be the first ever charter school strike. Educators in the Acero Charter School Network are, among other things, demanding higher pay and smaller class sizes. The union, which represents 500 or so teachers in the Acero Network, are also requesting so-called sanctuary school language be put into the next contract, which would bar Acero schools, which we should say serve mostly Latino students, from giving authorities the immigration information of its students. So jealous. If they get all those things in their picket and I'm... Charter school, they're... Man, they have so much more... 
independence, and then they're going to pick it and get all these things, and I'm in this big, clunky school district. Well, strike, Maddie. Ah. (laughs) A proposed bill in the North Dakota legislature would allow schools to make up school days canceled by snow through virtual learning. The idea stemmed from a class research project done by fourth graders at Louis L'Amour Elementary School in Jamestown, North Dakota. In North Dakota, schools are required to be in session 180 days out of the year, but days frequently get canceled by snow. But the lawmakers behind this new bill suspect most districts already have the technology to be able to pull off virtual school on snow days and want to implement that idea as a pilot program. There you go, Luann. Luann, yeah, that's, that's that. the problem right <laughs> I mean, there. I don't know. Why can't just they, just, why can't they just build in the school days and say we're going to allow for, I, it's North Dakota, we'll allow for 10 freaking no, days no, no, or whatever. And if you don't <laughs> use them, then we'll get out of school this earlier. Is for your crab, so crab virtual learning, not not a solution. To Send them a video. <laughs> I think when you're that young and in your formative years, I'm not sure how, you know. And speaking of snow, (laughs) in Severance, Colorado, for decades it had been illegal to throw snowballs. It was part of an ordinance passed back in the 1920s that prohibited the throwing of missiles or stones at people or property. You could disguise a stone. Well, that didn't sit well with nine-year-old Dane Best. He pleaded with the Severance (laughs) Town Board to repeal the ban on throwing snowballs, saying in part, according to the Greeley, Colorado Tribune, quote, the children of Severance want the opportunity to have a snowball fight like the rest of the world. they got to be legal. The law was created many years ago. Today's kids need a reason to play outside. Civics, get it, bud. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) Just don't don't pull rocks in your snowball. Just, like, throw a snowball. The town board listened to Dane and repealed the ban. Dane was supported by his civics teacher. <laughs> yeah, he, he was probably was. inspired by the civics instruction <laughs> yep. he got in class. He so was. maybe we wrap it maybe all around and, and maybe democracy can be saved after all. Through snowball fighting. <laughs> Make a petition. <laughs> Through healthy forms of, of aggression, right? <laughs> Coming up, kids these days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Greg, what are your kids into? Um, right now, they're they're concerned about finals that are coming up, um, where they run from the... Well, okay, I'd say some are concerned about finals coming up. Run the gamut from from students that are, are, are breaking down in tears because they are freaked out um, and they, they don't have the A that they want coming into finals. And they're, they're, they're like in my honors class, um, had a student that did just break down in tears because she got a B on a, on a quiz. Oh. Um, and, yeah. and just so much pressure, especially at the, the, at when, once you're upperclassmen, um, so much level and so much pressure because of, of you think about college or stuff at home and it's, and it's tough. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum where kids are like, we have finals, what's a final, you know, kind of, kind of idea. You're like, uh, well, eh, it doesn't matter. So, um, yeah, talking about finals, some, you know, are really worried. Some don't know they exist. Maddie, what are your kids into? Um, they really like our read aloud right now because of Winn-Dixie. We're reading that at the end of the day and they're all super, super, super into it. That and, um, going up reading levels. Everybody's like, they're like, I'm going to go up a reading level, Miss B. And so everybody's working really, really hard to try and get their reading levels to go up and 
they all really love because of Winn-Dixie. And why do they like? I mean, because I, of Winn-Dixie or yeah. the reading levels? Why do they like because of Winn-Dixie? Um, I can. I'm going to try and explain this as as succinctly as possible. <laughs> right. It was a you know when a third grade teacher tells you about a story in the classroom and it's only funny to her because she was there or him. Mm-hmm. That's that's why they love it. There was a moment. In the story, there's um, a part about a pet shop, and so I asked the class, oh, what would be in a pet shop, guys? And one of my students, um, who's really hilarious, started yelling, camels, camels, camels are in pet shops. And I was like, no, camels aren't in pet shops. And she went, no, camels. And I went, yeah, there aren't camels in pet shops. And she went, no, kennels. And then I, I started laughing really hard, and then everyone started laughing, and third graders don't know how to build on jokes and so the whole <laughs> classroom just kind of erupted in everyone repeating like a parrot what just happened. They're like, she said kennels and Miss B thought she said ca- camels. And then they were just saying that back and forth to each other. You really had to be there. You can So because of out. that, they love the book because of that memory. Each, each time we sit down now, yeah. one kid will go, remember when so-and-so said <laughs> kennels, but Miss B thought she said camels and then everyone starts laughing and it was really funny but you really had to be there i apologize (laughs) for that luann what are your kids into well um my kids they you know i teach a language class and my kids have language that they like to use so i actually asked them about it because there were some some words that are being tossed around and uh so I'd like to talk to you today a little bit about Bop, Sprite Cranberry, and Weird Flex, but okay. So I've been hearing that, and I'm saying, what, what does that mean? So actually, uh, a student wrote me about like what all, all that means. So uh, Bop can be used as a verb or a noun, but it's popularly, popularly used when it's describing songs, like this song is such a bop. Although, however, in a separate email, he actually told me that bop is so very vague. Normally used in place of a standard verb when trying to add some flair to a sentence, it can be a little goofy. It can be an onomatopoeia as a verb or as this an adjective. This is your student writing. Yeah, yeah, but it's all based on context it's used. It could be used in the following ways. Can you bop me that notebook instead of could you pass me that notebook? That was a bad bop instead of that didn't go very well. <laughs> or we could use it in class the other day when Wilson shot Gatsby. Wilson bopped Gatsby and then he bopped himself, in which case bop acts as a verb and somewhat here is an onomatopoeia. It can be used in place of nearly any word, which is what I personally enjoy about it. <laughs> okay. Okay, Bob. Wow. That's Bob for you. Sprite cranberry? Because I'm like, what? Is, what was Sprite? Is it like literally Sprite cranberry? And he's like, oh no, here's here's what he wrote. Me. <laughs> it's funny as a standalone phrase. Sprite ran a TV commercial in which an actor asked intriguingly, "Do you want a Sprite cranberry?" In a variety of places and situations, this is now used simply in reference to the commercial in which a person will just comically ask another, "Do you want a Sprite cranberry?" This is used oftentimes when one is just considering a beverage choice or when one is generally indecisive about any particular subject and seeking an answer loves to a you. solution. The amount of work and, he put into this email. Oh my gosh, he was like, he was totally pumped about this, but weird flex, but okay, that's what's interesting. A flex, I didn't know if you knew this, is an attempt to brag to someone. Yeah. So if you said the previous phrase, like weird flex, but okay, that's just an attempt to discredit the bragger, but but only yeah. sort of. No, I right. get that. Weird flex, but uh, right. So I know that I'm one. learning all the language. <laughs> 
until it changes, people. You, know, you, flex, <laughs> you flex your knowledge. I say that. I'm like, hey, let's like flex our math. So like weird skills. flex, but okay means y- you try, but you didn't quite get there. Um, but I appreciate the it's effort. An atti- I Fle- guess. I think flex an- is synonymous, synonymous with like peacocking. Yeah, on that you know one, I mean? like on I all understand. levels, right? Like, okay, so there you go. You like flex yourself. Well, you thanks, Luann, for the <laughs> the dissertation. That email was a flex. The email was a flex. He was he was trying. He was always helping me. So. Well, yeah. If you get frustrated with kids who are never there, Luann, just remember that. Just remember kid. that. I will yeah. remember this kid. Yeah. That's great. Uh, well, thanks to our teachers this week, Greg Brenner, Maddie Burke, Kemper, Luann Fox. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be, be nice, nice to, to your, your teachers. teachers. Yes.